This episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi gang, Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Dan McCrory. We talk about him running for union president, and we also talk about his book, Capitalism Kill the Middle Class, 25 Ways the System is Rigged Against You as well as his latest release, which is You Will Forever Be My Always. So besides those things, we also get into a conversation about politics. So if politics isn't your thing, this may not be the episode for you. But we talk about unions, we talk about drug costs, we talk about labels, which he knows is a favorite topic of mine, and many other things. So I hope you enjoy the show, as always. Hi, Dan. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. How about you, Donna? I'm doing good. I am doing very good. So you had a moment and you, you, you don't shy away from politics that you actually ran for union president. Yes. So how, how unnerving is it to run for union president? Well, at the time we were entering uh, new territory with a company we didn't know a lot about, which was SBC, the one that came out of Texas and um, they had left us alone for five years, but, the hammer was about to come down and, and uh, I didn't want to uh, be presiding over a, a, an institution that was going to be going away pretty soon. So um, we fought tooth and nail for the next three years while I was president to keep as many jobs as we could here in uh, California. So, and I mean, you know, what's interesting about that is let's go back from SBC. We have the, the Ma Bell, AT&T, everybody was like, well, we can't break up, you know, Southern Bell. We can't break up the Bells. And then yeah. we had SBC and then our Ameritech SBC. And now we have AT&T. <laughs> and it's like the, the monopoly is just back. It's, you know, granted, we have Verizon and, and a couple other independent phone companies, but still there's the monopoly. I mean, if you move to a town, you are very limited in the choice of what cable company you could get. It's like that Terminator movie where the guy keeps coming back together again. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how it was. And SBC, SBC is still the person behind the curtain. Uh, they went with the AT&T name because it was more universally known. And that's what a lot of companies do. It's like when we do a merger, we, we hide behind the better known name. Exactly. I, I often find the movie Wall Street interesting because... You know, when I, wa- when I watched Wall Street back in the 80s, I was like, why? How could somebody do that? They just gobble up a company and then they don't care about the people. But really, that has become a template, even though I know Oliver Stone didn't intend for that. It has become a template of capitalism. That's very true. Um, it's actually started with Reagan because Reagan um, said he wasn't going to fire the air traffic controllers for being on strike, but he was going to permanently... Um, Permanently replace them, I think, is the way he put it. So um, that was supposed to be make it all legal because it's illegal, according to um, law, to um, uh, dismiss or fire people for um, union activity. So he thought he was getting around that. Apparently, the courts agreed with him. Well, it all depends on how the courts are stacked, doesn't it? That's true. Uh, you do know politics. <laughs> I, um, I had kind of a... a- I, I, I don't want to say come to Jesus moment, but when my uh, husband had had cardiac bypass surgery, 
I used to have to take him to this pl- a hospital and I couldn't go in. It wasn't during COVID, but I couldn't go in and I'd sit in the car and unfortunately I couldn't get a lot of radio stations. So the only station I could get was progressive talk. So I started listening to Tom Hartman and Ed Schultz and I started listening and, and getting a bigger perspective of things. Very good. So, I mean, I, I don't, I don't regret it because it actually opened my eyes. And then we watched John Stewart and Colbert, which granted they're satirical, but sometimes there's actually truth in humor as we oh, know. Yeah. Oops. I had a, a lawyer friend uh, tell me that because of the, of reading my, my book, Capitalism Killed the Middle Class, up there, there we go, there uh, that she uh, uh, actually became a progressive because of, uh, she realized that the things I was bringing up in the book were true and, and pretty accurate about the way um, the cards are stacked against us. Well, and you can look at how, you know, growing up for me, I entered the workforce in the 80s, the early 80s. And so I still had some of those companies that if when I worked at the hotel, oh, for Thanksgiving, we'll give you a, a, a turkey. And for Christmas, we'll give you a ham. You know, we'll give you these little perks. Yeah. And slowly but surely, that went away. We didn't appreciate the employee. And, and now, I think with COVID, we're starting to see that kind of turn around that the employees are going, you know what? I don't need you. Exactly. I'm so glad to see that because... Um, as I've watched the millennials get older, I realize that um, they don't uh, take unions for granted. They realize that uh, they are usually the collective voice of, of uh, workers, uh, whether you like them or not. Uh, they, uh, they hold that role. And uh, they realize that uh, in order to have some security in their lives and able to be able to buy a house and all those kinds of things, they uh, need to... Uh, think about things differently than baby boomers have because baby boomers are now saying, Oh, you're lucky you have that. You're lucky to have this. And it's not like it used to be where you said, damn it. I should have that too, because my next door neighbor got that. Yeah. I mean, that that's the, that's a lot of the, the older generations thought it's like, well, you got to work hard, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But the opportunity is not there. And your college, I mean, I was one of the last generations where college was still affordable, you know, and then all of a sudden now it's like, oh, you want to go to college? Okay, well, get your checkbook out and be willing to chain yourself to debt. Exactly. And it doesn't uh, go away for the longest time. No. And then the real kicker is half the time, especially, you know, I knew people that would go to college and they were working at Taco Bell or I had people that were under me, even though I didn't finish college they were under me with their college degree. I was making more than them. The the biggest example, and granted, the guy had not gotten his bar to bar. He hadn't passed the bar yet. But when I was working in insurance, I was doing a a motorcycle claims for California, even though I was based in Illinois. And Hmm. we got this guy in. My boss is like, we got somebody to get to, to be your helper. I'm like, okay. And he was, I think, 27, 28 years old. He had a law degree. And I'm his boss. And I'm just like, really? I'm his boss? And he's like, yeah, you're his boss now. I'm like, okay. But granted, it it was also training for him. And yes, eventually he did pass the bar and everything. He got moved from being my underling. But the whole fact of the matter is, it was kind of ironic because here this guy spent all this money for his education and I'm his boss. You ever heard of the Coral Foundation? No. 
Uh, the Coral Foundation takes recent college graduates and puts them in the world of uh, public affairs. They'll work for a corporation for six weeks, then they'll go work for a union and a nonprofit agency, and they'll, they'll do all that. And it's supposed to give them a well-rounded education. And uh, so I've, I've been in that situation with five interns from the Coral Foundation who worked under me. But I saw it as a way for me to teach them about uh, uh, treating working people with dignity and um, respect. So uh, that was my job by having them under under me. So um, and uh, they've gone on to be Congress people and things like that. So you, you never know really whose uh, mind you're fertilizing. Right. And, and I mean, the one thing for me, I started out in mail file and worked my way up to, you know, receptionist, to an adjuster, to a supervisor. And I knew what it was like for those people that were under me. And I think that's where we have the disconnect in our political system is because we have people that are in power that either A, have never had a hard life or had a hard time in their life. And B, now that they are so far removed from it, they don't understand. Well, I also asked a couple of uh, Republican Congress people when I was lobbying their workers' issues uh, why they were so anti-union. And they would go way back in their work life and talk about a, a situation that happened where a union steward didn't follow up on their grievance or something like that. And they held a grudge all those decades later. Wow. that yeah. That's insane. It is. But I mean, when they're, when they're, when you hear things like they don't want to increase benefits because, well, then people aren't going to want to work because, you know, they should, they don't want to increase, we'll say SNAP benefits, food stamps. We don't want to increase that because that, that doesn't give people the incentive to work. Well, here's the thing. If somebody's working two jobs and they have kids and granted, I know there's deductions they can take for children. That's still how are who's raising the kids? If the person is working constantly and they can't afford food, what's really going on in that house? And you know, I had I had a situation where I had posted a meme on Facebook about gardening, that gardening should be taught in the schools. And my uncle's like, no, that's the parents' job. And I'm thinking, parents don't have the time for that anymore. Exactly. Of course, my uncle's in his 70s and no offense to anybody that is that age, but it's like, it's once again, looking at it as this is what we used to be able to do, but our society doesn't operate that way anymore. Out here in California, uh, there's always complaints about, well, th- why don't they learn English with people from Mexico? And if they're working two jobs, they don't have time to go to school. No, no. And I mean, they're working hard and, and that's yeah. the thing I don't think. I don't think people, I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, the fact that we were all taught that you should be going to college. College is where it's at. Don't go into manufacturing. Don't go into trade school. You need a college education if you want to make something of yourself. Okay. And as we said, chain yourself to debt and you're not going to use your degree possibly. So then what do you have? You have a piece of paper and I'm not, I think college is great if you want to go to college, but there shouldn't be any disparaging remarks if you want to be a janitor well when i uh before i went to college i used to say i i don't need college i'm a graduate of the school of hard hard knocks and uh i realized how tired and and ugly that sounded when i finally went to college mm-hmm. i um my company finally offered tuition aid so i jumped at the chance to get my degree that said i uh, was a journalist and the funny thing is 
I was already doing the work out in the field. So I didn't need that piece of paper, but I felt like I it right. somehow substantiated me. Validated. Right. It validated you. It gave you the validation that you, you know, it finally made people look at you that you have that title now. Exactly. And, and that's the, that's the weird thing about our society is that we have these labels and, and titles and, the truth of the matter is we identify so hard that when we lose those titles, we're left going, well, who am I now? Exactly. And, and the same thing happens when you retired. I retired 10 years ago. And uh, for the longest time, I felt like, where's the structure of my life now? And, and who am I? Because I was, because I, one of the first questions when you meet somebody at a party is, uh, so what do you do? Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, that supposedly is who you are. I, I I went through that at a younger age because I, as I said, I was an insurance supervisor. And I mean, I can sit here and rattle off many different occupations that I've done, including great graveyard shift, draw shrinking factory worker, you know, but the whole fact of the matter is when I left, because I identified so much with being a claim supervisor that when I left that job, it took me a while to come to terms with that's not who I am. Right. And yeah. I think there's many ways it's not just your job, your relationships also do that to you. So it's like, we have to find a way to look at ourselves without looking at the outside parameters, which is a really hard thing because we're not taught that. And in some ways that also qualifies you as a a success or a failure. Mm -hmm. And that's not right either. No, no, because success really, you know, success, we, we, we've always equated sex or equated sex or excuse me, <laughs> success, success, not sex, success um, to the white picket fence, to having 2.5 kids, to having that nice little, you know, craftsman home. But if exactly. that's, that's not really success, is it? If, no, you have, if, you, if you have the house, but you are so far in debt. How is that? How is that happy? Right. And millennials uh, are finding out that uh, they're going to be the first generation that have it uh, harder than uh, the previous one. So and they may not ever see that house with a big offense. Yeah. They're starting to realize that. Well, and, you know, this goes back to your capitalism. When my father, when my father-in-law bought his first house, he bought his first house in Wheeling and he paid $17,000 for it. That same house, I think back in 2012, was selling for $300,000. Now, what has changed? Is it still the same nails that built the house? Is it still the same wood? You know, maybe you've done some upgrades inside, but maybe you haven't. So what has really changed to increase that value? I heard a long time ago that the, the only thing that was really going to appreciate over time would be property. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's uh, been proven to be true. I know up here in uh, uh, San Francisco area, uh, it's one of the most expensive places in the world to live. And um, I don't know how people do that. Well, it's like, if you think about the HGTV shows, and not that I've watched many, but I have seen enough, you know, here comes the, 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 the teacher, the teacher with her husband, who's just whatever, some mild mannered job, and their budget is $700,000 for a house. Really? <laughs> really? I mean, at what point do we not, do we have too high a value on property that nobody's going to be able to 
live. I mean, an apartment, a studio apartment here in the town I live in is $850. You're not going to be able to work minimum wage and, and afford a place to live, plus utilities. That's very true. But then you get twelve hundred here, but uh, but then uh, you get the people that back to the group that that says, "Well, you're lucky you got a job." You know, you have the people that, well, you know, work another job, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, don't have any fun, work your tail off, you'll get ahead. Those 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 mantras don't work anymore. No, they don't. So let's talk about your book, "Capitalism Killed the Middle Class." What ended up? You know, it says 25 ways the system is rigged against you. So why did you come to the the realization? Was it because you watched George Carlin and you realized it was a boys club? Or was there something that actually hit home that made you think, I need to sit here and tell this story? Well, it started out as a memoir because I spent 37 years at AT&T. And uh, during that time, I also became a union president. And I saw things from a different point of view there. And uh, I wondered in the beginning, it says that in the book, that I wondered why somebody didn't come in and uh, start shooting up the place like so many places have. Because I was seeing um, SBC, like I said, left us alone for five years. When they finally came in, they uh, things that we used to get hand slapped for before were suddenly major things and, and people lost their jobs over it. Oops. Break it. Hello? Trying to save third almost. I'm sorry. You broke up. You broke up. You're you're frozen. Okay, go back to what you were saying. There we go. Okay, so um, I saw the writing on the wall because I was in a particular place where I could look across the company. People were being treated crappy, crappy over here, but these people didn't necessarily talk and realize how bleak the situation was. So uh, that was why that didn't happen. And I was so thankful that it didn't. But I also knew that uh, that meant we we're probably going to have a strike soon and we were going to be uh, going toe-to-toe on a lot of it, which uh, did uh, happen. So did I answer, Sean? You did. You did. It's, it's just kind of breaking up, but you okay. did. Um, and, and here's something that we have the big okay. Motorola facility here. We have a giant Motorola built facility they built. Oh, yeah. And they built it in 98. It closed by 2002. And it still sits vacant. It, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay. It sits vacant still. And we've had, now we have, in, we have investors. One investor bought it, let it go to pot. Second investor bought it. Oh, wait, he's in jail in Canada for some Ponzi scheme he was running. Oh, now somebody else has bought it. Meanwhile, the power has been shut off for for years, and it's really turned to pot. So what's going to happen with it? Who knows? Let's talk about AT&T again. They recently, well, not recently, it's a couple of years now, they bought Warner Brothers, Mm -hmm. and they brought in their own uh, uh, administrative people. And uh, they're from the telecom industry. They know nothing about making movies. And so uh, now all these people have lost their jobs at Warner Brothers because um, they don't know what they're doing. So um, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, it happened. The last insurance company I worked at, 
they decided that they were going to expand and they were going to expand big. So they went, they went from Pennsylvania to expanding to Chicago to getting an office in Arizona. And they started writing high risk policy losses or policies, uh-huh. which, and then they wrote a hurricane policy for Hawaii. That's like, Granted, you don't hear a lot about hurricanes out there, but still, um, you know, and you're writing high risk drivers and they were writing trucking claims. So it's like you're you're putting so much out there that the risk is going to kill the company. The company ended up closing, I think, a year and a half after I left. And all the people that didn't make those decisions were the ones that suffered. Yeah. 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 I mean, you. I understand the, the high risk pool needs to be, if they're going to drive, they need that risk. But when you decide, let's just make our book a business that you're not, you're not looking. And that's the problem. We have actuaries that don't, that look at numbers, but they don't look at real world things. They look at data and that's fine. Data sometimes will give you all the answers, but then there's times that data won't. Exactly. You're, you're losing human element when you're not talking about, you know, when you're looking at data and not looking at what's going on. It's like um, they put a computer program together about left turn accidents when I worked at another insurance company. Hmm. And when you were doing a recorded interview, you were supposed to click off the boxes. So you're clicking off the boxes, but I had a couple of left turns that the scenario was not in the computer. Hmm. And they were taking the liability decision away from the adjuster. So it's like, well, but your your system's flawed. And I think that's, you know, here, how long ago did you write your book about capitalism? Uh, it was published in uh, 2019. Okay. So not that long ago. So how do you think automation is going to affect capitalism? Well, it's actually in the book. I, taught, I uh, definitely address um, uh, artificial intelligence and technology. Uh, what was interesting is uh, while I was writing the book, I found something on Facebook. This guy was advertising that he had uh, AI for writers. And I, yeah. now, we'd always, we writers had always laughed that there was no way they're going to be able to do the creative element that we uh, put in our stuff. But they, they had come up with this thing and it made it very scary. And he says, it's not supposed to be scary. It's supposed to help you. <laughs> How is it not? I mean, it's like you just want to look at somebody and go, hi, did you watch the Terminator movies at all? Did you? <laughs> did you? Not saying that that's not. But I mean, when you look at certain things, how, back to Wall Street, Wall Street played out in reality. Yeah. How, how can tech not play out in reality? How do you know that AI is not going to evolve way faster than humanity? Well, we also need to have a basic uh What's it called? Uh, basic income? Yes. Universal basic income. And uh, if you've got uh, at least a floor in you, you can uh, worry about going for uh, uh, better things or better jobs and still know you have some stability there. And so I think that's a really important consideration as we move forward into this uh, uh, big, scary world of uh, technology. Some of it will actually help us, but there's a lot that's going to get rid of a lot of jobs I mean, truck drivers and people like that. Uber actually has uh, stated that they're looking forward to uh, driverless cars. They won't be paying anybody then. Well, Taco Bell has a, a, a design that they want to do 
you know, drive through without humans. Basically, you put your order in and it'll drop down a chute and everything's there for you. Yeah, but- my wife and I were in Amsterdam and we went into a McDonald's just because you get to a point when you're in tra- uh, traveling that you want something from home. Yeah. And uh, so we went into this McDonald's and everything was automated except where you actually pick up your food from somebody because they make sure your order is right. But everything else is automated. And it, it was it was a... Um, 1984 experience. <laughs> well, and that's what I've ta- I talked to somebody because I that was my very first job was working at McDonald's and you know you didn't take credit cards you had to do everything still and mm-hmm. now it's like well you know the first shift you never wanted to have was the three hour fry shift at lunch because you were going to get burned you were going to oh. get burned by a basket or grease somehow you were going to get a burn. Huh. Well now. It lowers itself. It raises itself. But guess what? You can make $16 an hour working at McDonald's now. That's true. Yeah. Because nobody wants to do it. They, exactly. We had a 24-hour McDonald's here, and it's now, they close at 10. Huh. Because, and we live on a place, we live on a main drag. The town is in a main drag where truckers come through and everything. But it closes because they can't find people to work. In fact, one day it was closed at like 6 o'clock at night. Wow. So I miss that dinner rush. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like, it goes back to, there's many, there's many facets this goes back to because you have the people that don't want to work at McDonald's because while I'm working at McDonald's, you have, is $16 really a minimum, a living wage? And are you only working part-time? Because if you're working part-time, that's not enough hours to get you anywhere. Exactly. No healthcare, none of that. Yeah. No. You're right back in that position. Yeah. Right. And I was like, well, there's the healthcare exchanges, but healthcare used to be a reasonable thing. Now, when you have to pay a deductible of $4,000 for a year, how is that reasonable to anybody? Yeah, there are a couple of major uh, holes in the the, uh, Affordable Care Act that that need to be patched up. And uh, we need to be able to negotiate for better drug prices and have some kind of uh, set prices on on uh, whether it's uh, an aspirin or uh, a um, appendectomy or yeah. whatever it takes, and um, I, I, we could do that already. Well, I mean, I, I've talked about this on the podcast because my husband he was had end stage renal disease, so he was mm-hmm. on Medicare, and he had a, a cardiac bypass surgery, and he was in the hospital for ten days, and then he had to go into a, a care facility because he was a larger guy, and so. They reduced his hospital bill from one hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars down to seventeen thousand, and because wow. we had a, we had our supplemental, which nobody ever talks about. Everybody's like, "Oh, Medicare for all, yay!" Which I think it's great because it reduces prices. However, you better have a supplemental policy, otherwise you're paying out of pocket. That seventeen thousand would have came out of our pocket. Fortunately, we had a plan that covered it all, so we had nothing. But when you, you know, we we can talk about Medicare because going back to the drug prices, when they switched over to the seniors having to pay for their drugs, oh, we're going to close the donut hole. That donut hole still exists. Yeah. It's never closed. And that was supposed to close back, what, 2006 or 2009? And it's still never closed. I know. We're so behind where we need to be. Uh, Out here in California, we got something called uh, CalCare that we're trying to pass which is a single payer system because we finally got fed up with the federal system, realized we had to do our own thing out here. So mm-hmm. uh, 
That's looking very promising. It's a uh, assembly built uh, 1400. If anybody wants to follow it, uh, and um, uh, we've been uh, rallying, and, and I think we may actually get it passed. There, there's two things I want to touch on because you know you you mentioned basic income, and that was Andrew Yang's platform. So yes, he well. had some merit there, and then of course the negotiation of drug prices. That's been Bernie's big, Bernie Sanders' big big push. So it's like, if we could actually get progressive candidates instead of the corporate Democrats, that I hate to say it that way, but I mean, it, that's, you know, it goes back to what you were saying about killing the middle class, about the system being rigged. It feels like the system is being rigged because it's like, every time we have something that might be against corporate America, it gets boot, you know, a boot comes down and kills it for whatever reason. Another thing you'll find in the book, is uh, something called the Powell Memo or the Powell Manifesto. A lot of people don't know what that is. 1971, Louis C. Powell, who had uh, argued in front of the Supreme Court on behalf of cigarette companies saying they weren't addicting, uh, was asked by a friend of his with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to come up with a way to refute all the Vietnam veterans and uh, all the hippies that were saying that we were only in the Vietnam War uh, so corporations can make profits and our boys are coming home in body bags. <clears throat> so he wrote this 19-page memo. Um, Nixon loved it so much, he appointed him to the, the Supreme Court. And um, uh, Reagan loved it, uh, so he gave copies of it to his, his uh, um, cabinet. Every, uh, every uh, Republican president since Nixon has followed this program to the T. And I've come up with something I call the McCrory Manifesto because I'm the only one talking about it. Taking that document, gutting it, putting in uh, um, social, uh, democratic socialism, putting in unions, putting in workers, and, and making it about us because we can, uh, that thing has been so effective in getting us to talk like bankers instead of our own interests that uh, we need to uh, steal it and, and make it our own. Well, and there's two things I want to touch on. You know, you're talking about um, the whole fact that military is making, you know, they made money off the war in every war. My mom used to say when I was growing up, well, we need a good war to get the economy straight. And I was always like, what? But I remember Dwight, you know, that Dwight D. Eisenhower actually said, what we have to fear is the military industrial complex. Exactly. But nobody has ever listened to that. And now we actually, besides that, the other big one is big pharma. I mean, you and I, there was a time in our lives where you didn't turn on the TV and see an ad for some kind of medication. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's crazy because why, why do I need to know about an, um, a medication on TV? Why? And then I want to touch upon, I know I'm jumping, but I want to touch upon the fact that you said democratic socialism. People consider that such a dirty word, but the fact of the matter is we have public schools, we have an army, we have fire department, police department, we have libraries, we already have democratic socialism, but people don't hear it. It's because we've been trained since uh, before we were born uh, to be afraid of that word because that was uh, one short step away from communism. Uh, it's just not true. There is many forms of uh, socialism as there are capitalism, because the capitalism they practice in Finland and Norway and Sweden is not the same that we practice here. Here, ours is very, it's crony, it's, it's um, um, exploitative, 
all those kinds of things. Excuse me. <coughs> so um, we we uh, have to uh, quantify this this word and 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 realize that's another thing I like about millennials. Millennials aren't afraid of that word. It's no longer the S word to them. It's something that uh, is a viable alternative. Well, it's it's something that I think if you really unpack it and you look at it, it's it's to better society. You know, they always say democracy only lasts roughly 250 years, and we are kind of there. Yeah. So, you know, we have to look at the bigger picture of what are we going to do? Are we going to allow other people that are in power to keep making money off of things and benefiting themselves as opposed to doing what's best for everyone. Exactly. There's a nonprofit out there. I just found out about, I can't remember their, their name, but they're uh, trying to make a case. So that people see that our resources are, are um, limited. And so rather than, um, because capitalism uh, believes in growth, 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 growth. And uh, if you don't have the, uh, resources there, you can't grow anymore. So what are you going to do? You're going to take those uh, forces and try to feather your own nest or at least make things better for uh, your own community. And that's what corporations used to do back in the day. Uh, Dale Carnegie, all those captains of industry, they um, um, built museums, they, they built uh, all sorts of things uh, to, for the people to be educated and, and, and trained uh, on how to tackle uh, the world. And, and well, we're not seeing as that uh, beacon of light anymore. Well, and, and there's a couple of things here too, when you think back to, cause I'm a child of the seventies. You know, when I look at things I remember from TV, when I was a kid, you had the Maytag repairman who was always lonely because nobody called him because his products were good. They lasted. You would buy a fridge. It would last for years, you know, and now it's like you buy a fridge and you hope it lasts for at least two, maybe yeah. five, because you're not sure how long it's going to last. You know, it, it's it's an amazing thing. And then the other thing is, you know, look for the union label. That was that whole commercial that had the lovely song and, you know, you couldn't help but sing along. And, yeah. and my parent, my dad was a retired. He's a retired fireman. He was a union guy. He had some problems with his union, but ultimately he knows that the union got him someplace. Yeah, I, I personally am working on um, changing unions, making it more about change from the bottom up, because I think part of the problem has been this perception of the union boss in a back room with a big fat cigar, uh, not caring whether he, uh, um, he bankrupts a company for uh, or actually uh, bargains a good contract. And that's part of that is uh, like every other stereotype, partly a negative truth buried by a, a, a whole lot of BS. So uh, we have to, um, I wrote an article recently about, uh, I said, uh, we're looking for young uh, labor leaders because those those people haven't learned uh, what they can't do yet. They just know what they want to do and, and uh, hopefully we can make it so they can do it. Well, don't we have that a little bit in politics too? Don't we need some younger blood in there? I mean, come on. You know, I mean. AOC, yeah. I think that we have a lot of people in there that are just still in there that shouldn't be because look, yes, I understand that young, I mean, there's the whole argument about term limits, whether they're good or bad. And, and we don't have to get go there because there are 
equal arguments. Somebody can still be bought off, even if they're in, it's if you have short term limits. So don't sit there and play naive and say, oh, nobody would be bought off. No. But I think at a certain point, if we keep voting just because of name recognition and they're not doing anything for their people, but they're keep building, becoming a millionaire, then we have a problem. Yeah. Well, I personally am not. I'm going to go there, even though you didn't want to. Okay. No, that's uh, fine. You can. I just didn't. <laughs> I was just saying. I'm not for term limits. What I'm for is, is, is longer limits. Because what happens is they're, they're elected for like two years and they go in and first thing they have to do is start raising money for the next election. Right. Yeah, that's, if you made yeah. a four-year term, then they would have time to actually get some things done before they had to start the whole money machine again. And, and bonus, you're cutting down on the elections. The ele- if you cut down on the election cycle, you would, if the Senate and the Congress people had the same election cycle, we wouldn't be paying for the extra elections. So I'm not going to disagree. And, and the fact that you have to dial for dollars and you spend so much time dialing for dollars that you can't read the bill that's being presented in front of you and you just vote on it, then who's really driving the bus here? Are we having groups like ALEC create bills? You yeah. know, that these think tanks, and I know Democrats have one, have them as well. Yeah. Who's really running the country? Right. Now, we have the Progressive Policy Institute and the Economic Policy Institute on the left side. Um, yeah, you raised a, a good point there. Um, another thing that I was looking at is something called instant runoff voting. And that's uh, that would save us money on having runoff elections. You put your first, second, and third choices on there. Whoever ends up with the pl- plurality first is the one that gets elected. So uh, you may want number one, but uh, you, you could live with number two. And if that person gets enough votes, then, uh, then you don't have the costly elections that cost uh, cities and counties so much more money and also the candidates. Well, and, and let's go back to the candidates for a second with their, okay. their money that they have to raise. And now that we have the super PAC because of, you know, Citizens United and, you know, let's let's talk about corporations being people. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is, if you took these candidates and that's what the one podcast I was talking about earlier, we did talk about campaign finance reform. And the fact is, I think it's I don't I don't think it's Bali, but there's a small country that they are given, I think, like a minimal amount of money to run on. And that's it. They can't touch anything else. If they do, they forfeit their their space. If we actually had them where they only had X number of dollars and guess what? You have to do some good work for the people that you're supposedly your constituents. Yeah. Instead of having all the negative TV ads. I mean, let's be honest. How well do those ads work anymore? (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, I ran for office myself, and uh, one of the things I promised voters I wouldn't do is is inundate them with all these uh, camping flyers and all this. And uh, yet, when it came to people voting, they went with the person who sent the most flyers. Yeah, it was, it was frustrating. It's it's brand recognition, dare I say, and that that's the sad thing. It's like most most voters aren't informed. They're not going to sit there and read the issues. They're not. And I mean, that's why we're looking at the whole fact of the Supreme Court may be looking at Roe v. Wade again because nobody's paid attention. And that's that's something, you know, you were talking about the 70s and I don't remember the exact document, but I want to say it was Jerry Falwell, actually, that went and said, look, if we sit there and we tell people that we're going to try to get Roe v. Wade repealed 
and we start running on anti-abortion and pro-life, you're going to get voters and you're going to get them to be on your side and we'll never touch it. But if we can have them believing that we will, they'll vote for you. The scary thing is that I'm afraid they are going to be touching it in a big way. Yeah, me too. But I mean, this was in the 70s. Yeah. And the thing is, and this has always been my argument, and I am pro-choice and people can lash out at me, it's, but I think it's a woman's choice. But mm-hmm. when people sit there and say, I'm pro-life, okay, great. Are you willing to adopt? Are you willing to pay for the kid to be, go to school? Are you willing to pay for food? Because if you're the same person that's cr- complaining about food stamps or schools or anything like that, then you have a real conflict of interest there. Do <laughs> you? Talking about both sides of your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many people that do because it's like, well, it's a life. True. But if you're not willing to help support that life, then there's a problem. Yep. Because, and then of course they'll say, well, anybody can adopt a kid. Well, you won't, you don't want a gay couple to adopt a kid. So, and not that we wanted to get here because I mean, this is a very touchy subject. So, but anyway, you also wrote another book. Yes. You will forever be my always. So tell me about that one. This one, uh, uh, the first book took me four years. This book took me four months. Okay. This is my COVID novel. Um, it's uh, the main character is a guy named Charlie Wise. And he's uh, been cheating on his wife for years. And his friends can't stand him any longer. He finds out he has Parkinson's disease. So he... Um, uh, tells everybody, and they they say, "Big deal, go away." And uh, he ends up going to first Thailand, then Morocco, uh, to talk to holy people and ask them, "How how can I make amends? How can I fix this be- before I die?" And they have different suggestions. And finally, he ends up going on a, an apology tour where he grew up uh, in Texas, and, tr- and he tries to make life better for at least several people that whose lives he. Uh, for on purpose or not, uh, he screwed up, and um, that's that's what the book is about. And it was a way for me to deal with my own Parkinson's disease because I was able to see how the disease will probably progress. I was able to um, get maybe not comfortable with that, but but at least feel more uh, in charge because I've got the information in front of me now. And uh, what I'm going to do when I do book signings and book readings is I'm going to be handing out information to raise awareness about Parkinson's because we're actually pretty close to a cure. My mother-in-law had it, but she, she had worked in the medical profession and she, she would go on, she wouldn't go on WebMD. She had it because back then it wasn't too long ago, but she never had the internet, but she would research what she could. And then she diagnosed herself and that was it. No treatment. Just so it progressed. And I mean, she would have the shakes pretty bad. So if they're working on finding a cure, I hope they do. And I hope it's sooner than later. From what I understand, Michael J. Fox has personally put in a $1 billion billion towards research. Good. Well, I mean, this has affected his life greatly. Exactly. So how did you, if you don't mind me asking, how did you find out that you had it? I mean, was it something that slowly progressed and you were like, well, wait a second, this isn't right? Or was it something that just yeah, came on? It was very much like I, the guy discovers it in, in himself in the book. 
you look down and you see your thumb twitching. And uh, if you concentrate, it stops. But if you're not concentrating, it starts up again. And so I said, well, what is this? So I looked it up and just like in the book, uh, found uh, that uh, these medical sites said that it might be Parkinson's. <coughs> so I was talking to a friend of mine who's a chiropractor and he said, um, have, have it checked out. And I said, so I did. I went to my doctor. My doctor says, no, you don't have it. And so I went back to my friend and he said, ask for a second opinion. So I went in there and asked for a second opinion. Got another doctor, another general practitioner. And he says, no, you don't have it. And I went back to my chiropractor friend. He says, no, ask for a neurologist. So I said, okay. So I went back, asked for a neurologist. Within 10 minutes of seeing me, she said, you have Parkinson's. This is another thing we have to look at with the medical field is because yeah. we have, we've created this drive-through mentality for doctors for the most part. Not all doctors. I have a very good doctor and she, she takes a lot of time with me to talk to me when I need it. But there's some, I mean, I had an undiagnosed thyroid condition. And the only reason I found out is because I went to an acupuncturist after a car accident wow. and she's like, we need your full blood panel. So we ran it and I bring it to my primary care doctor. This was my old one. And he looks at it and he goes, where'd you get this? Not, not that you have this diagnosis of what she said. No, where'd you get this? I'm sorry. Does this offend you that somebody actually took the time to figure out what was wrong? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Go ahead. No, well, that's, that is a problem with the, the, the whole system. <coughs> I love Kaiser. They saved my life with, uh, of cancerous polyps they found. But I went to a therapist about something else. Oh, about how I was dealing with my disease. I saw her a few times and she said, well, uh, I can't keep seeing you like this. <coughs> we have to come up with a medical reason for you to continue. And I said, what does that mean? And, she, and I said, does that mean some kind of pill? And she said, yeah, basically. And I said, I'm out of here. And I left. Wow. Because <clears throat> they went the quick fix. Yeah. Well, that that's that's the way it is. I mean, we we want you. It goes back to big pharma. Big pharma's making that money. I remember going to a cardiologist and my cholesterol was one point high. And he's like, well, we might have to put you on a statin. I'm like, for one point? Really? My cholesterol is typically low, so I didn't do it. I ended up finding a different cardiologist. But I, they're so quick to put you on a medication that necessarily won't work. Right. And I'm not saying medicine's bad. I'm not. It, it's a lifesaver in certain cases. But for me, I had other health conditions, but the doctors weren't willing to look. And they're like, oh, you have fibro. Okay, are you going to take into consideration why I might have pain other than fibro, which is really why I have pain? But no, we, we're going to give you this because guess what? I can give you a pill. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I understand. So I take it. This is something that how 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 long have you had it? Uh, I think I, I'm pretty sure I was diagnosed in 2013, so it's it's been a while. And um, um, other than the twitch here in my chin, uh, you can't really tell I have it. And most times I keep those under control too. Um, and doing things like this is uh, traumatic for somebody like me because I'm worried I'm going to start, you know, flailing or something. And 
and I don't want to get to that point. And I probably won't do these anymore if I get to that point. I understand. I mean, it's something that you have to be, con- you know, conscious about. And I appreciate you doing this with me because, I mean, it is something you still have a message to share and something that is important to to talk about. Because not only do we talk about politics, we've also talked about something that there's a lot of people going through Parkinson's that maybe don't really realize it. Yeah, in fact, it's supposed to reach epidemic proportions in the next 10 years. Wow. If they don't get the cure. Wow. But then, you know, here's the thing. Is Big Pharma going to try to kibosh the cure? Well, they're definitely trying to make a hell of a lot of money off it before it ever happens, if it ever happens. Yeah. And that's that's the thing. It's like, when do you... It goes back to what you're saying about the system being rigged. It's like, when do we take money out of humanity? And I'm not saying no money, but when does humanity matter more? Somebody told me recently that um, that uh, Dasani and Aquafina are not selling water. They're selling plastic bottles. Wow. Because the water is ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> But, I mean, that goes with so many things, though. Yes. So many things. And they're, they're, it's becoming more and more that way, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, here, here's something. I, Illinois, we have, they decided last year to create a bill that was all about our license uh, plate registration. Mm-hmm. And because they were losing some gasoline tax on electric vehicles, well, in order to do that, we're going to raise up the, the fee to $1,000. Wow. So, it, I mean, our fee normally is 170 for our, our plates. But now oh. if you have an electric vehicle, it's $1,000. So if you were young and you wanted to be energy conscious, you just got screwed. Here in Los Angeles, uh, the Department of Water and Power has made a big deal out of getting people on solar but now they're crying because they're not making as much money off of the, the grid. So they've raised our rates. <laughs> well, they were talking, I was reading an article today that they're talking about rate putting a, the townships now and the cities are talking about raising a three cent gas tax, even though they're getting gas tax from the state that they're going to put it on municipalities. Now I'm like, we're already paying high price for gas. Exactly, And I don't want to turn this into a great fest about taxes because taxes do help. I'm not going to say they don't, right. but we do have to look at different structures. We really yeah. do. Plus, when, instead of building another bomber, we should be using some of that money for um, kids who have lost their parents or so many other issues that are, that are really important to the American people. Yeah. I mean, how much, and we, we don't need to, we don't need to militarize the police. You know, very true that that's why does, you know, why does they, why does the local police force need a tank? That's uh oh, you know, you're talking about uh, project 1033. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you're well-read. I must say um, mm-hmm. the 1033 project is uh, was supposed to be for the war on drugs and, and mm-hmm. they just got carried away. Uh, LA County uh, Sheriff's department recently, uh, bought 50 pairs of snowshoes. We hardly ever get any snow. That would Our, be like New Orleans buying snowshoes. <laughs> LA Unified School District bought 61 A14s, Arrow 14s. 
uh, an MRAP vehicle, which is anti-mines, and uh, three grenade launchers. No training, because training doesn't come with the purchase. And uh, I don't know what they're planning on doing with this stuff. It makes, it, it baffles the mind. And how do we sit there and go, okay, that's fine. Why do, yeah. why do we allow it? I mean, there's got to be a certain point when we, we start questioning what we're doing. And I mean, I'm not saying let's rise up. I'm not saying that. All I'm asking for is let's have some critical thinking going, why does the police force need in Los Angeles snowshoes? You know, something simple like that. It's not, it's not asking for a lot. It's just asking a simple question of why. Yeah. It's, it comes down to accountability. So, and nobody wants to be accountable for anything. No, no. And I mean, it's more than why ask why bud dry. I mean, it, you have to have a bigger, a bigger understanding of, you know, what are we doing? We finally, they just built a new jail because the, the jail that we had in town, which is a small town and, they couldn't even keep people in it because, well, it was leaking. The roof was leaking because the building was from the 1920s. Get this. No, this is it. This is will tell you how small my town is. They raised our water bill because they needed to pay for a sewage treatment plant because apparently our sewage treatment plant is outdated by like 25 years. Wow. So Motorola, that goes back to that Motorola. When Motorola came in, they made all these promises about paying for taxes and building up the town and blah, blah, blah. And then boom. Walmart effect. Well, and that's another thing. We had a Walmart at one place. They moved to another location in town. And I think they talked about pulling out, but we still have Walmart. But the grocery store we had in town is long gone. Yeah. That's what happens when Walmart comes in. They wipe out all small mom and pop businesses. And then uh, they don't understand where where all the customers went because nobody can afford to shop even there anymore. So then they pull up steaks and leave. And I mean, Walmart, I can't tell you how many times they've remodeled this store. Uh, And I've only been here since 2012. I think they've done it at least four times. But yet they've never fixed the leaks in the roof. Really? So, you know, you you mentioned in your write-up about the Green New Deal and Black Lives Matter and the criminal injustice system. Do you think that in our lifetime that we're going to see these major reforms for the criminal justice system. I mean, are they really going to happen or, or do we have too many people that have too many people that have infiltrated the justice system that are going to keep this at status quo? One of the major changes that seems like a small change that happened here in California was getting rid of um, bail. So the bail bondsmen are all really upset now because uh, they can't, uh, it depends on, the judge has a discrepancy of saying bail or no bail. And in a lot of cases where uh, poor people had to stay in jail because they couldn't come up with the bail, they're now being released on their own recognizance because they're not a flight risk, they're not going anywhere, this is their home. And uh, so uh, I see that as a promising sign that seems to be uh, headed uh, your way too, by the way. Uh, so um, a lot of... Uh, um, groups are working on, on those kinds of issues. So if we can take care of that, um, it won't be only poor people in jail. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. There's two justice systems. It's like if you know somebody or you you're, you have financial means or power, you don't get the same sentence. Um, and I mean, yeah. how many times have we seen the, the white, the young white boy get off where doing the same crime, the black guy, you know, I mean, yeah. 
and yeah. the, the shooting in Wisconsin is a lovely, lovely, lovely little tale. And yes, I, I'm in Illinois. So, you know, his mom drove him across the, across state lines. She should have been wow. held accountable. She sure. drove him with a gun across state lines. Well, he wasn't going to visit friends. He wasn't going to go play video games. What the hell was he doing? Right. Yeah, yeah. that's. I, I don't, don't understand um, why he's now a big hero. He's a big hero because people sometimes feel that they, you know, that he stood up for his rights. No. And, and here's the thing. One thing we have not touched upon, and yes, this is kind of considered media as well, is that the media now, because we took out the Fair Doctrine Act, which yes. you know about, we took that out. So now news became infotainment. So therefore, I can spin a story. I can create a narrative, i.e. Wag the Dog, the movie. I yep. can create a narrative for you to believe and gin you up so much that you're not even going to listen to anything else. That's true. And part of that is because of the consolidation of the media. Uh, it used to be that 50 corporations all owned uh, 90% of the media in this country. Then it became 25. And just a few years after that, it was six corporations. Now it's down to five. And uh, those five corporations control what we read, um, whether it's books, newspapers, what we uh, see on our TVs, and what we hear on our radios. They determine, and sometimes it's a corporate decision, uh, why they're not going to air a particular segment. I heard from a friend in Morocco that uh, that uh, they were building two uh, military U.S. Uh, military bases in Morocco. We haven't had a military base there since 1963. And I looked on the internet. I was trying to find something that said that we were doing that. And I finally found this obscure military magazine that mentioned that they were doing that. What they're doing is they're getting rid of uh, the one in Spain and building two in Morocco. Uh, the whole reason of having bases in that area is because they don't have to refuel before they head out for the Mideast. But see, they don't want you to know. There's exactly. certain things that we're not supposed to know. And it's like, are we, are we, you know, are we living in Oz? The man behind the curtain? I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, at what point is the, pre you know, people will complain about the president, but at what point is the president just a mere figurehead? Right. And if we go back to Reagan, how many times was Reagan told to sign something and he didn't even know what he was signing? Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of why I say that maybe we need younger blood in politics, nothing against people that are older, because they are wiser. They have more life experience, but they can also be more jaded. Then you got people like Bernie. Bernie, I mean, his heart yeah. is right there on his sleeve. I'm a, so I'm a Bernie girl. I voted for Bernie. I'm, not, I'm a Bernie girl, so... Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. In fact, I gave his book, uh, my my book, to his wife. Nice. Yeah. I mean, and um, the thing the thing about him is he does wear his heart on his sleeve, and he does try to live like a common man. Uh huh. But um, the powers of be aren't going to let somebody like that in there. For one thing, we've got people in the Democratic Party who are complaining constantly about the fact that they don't want an S socialist as president. So. Uh, people within the party that he's running and uh, aren't going to back him, then he's uh, it's a fatal complete. He's not going to be able to, to be our president. And that's too bad. There, I guess we have to wait for AOC. I hope so, but I, I've heard rumors and I hope 
I hope that we're not setting up for 2024 to be a rematch between Hillary and Trump. Yeah, that's kind of scary. I actually have heard rumors that uh, that Michelle Obama is going to run. See, I wouldn't mind. I yeah. wouldn't mind. I mean, I, I think that I think we need younger blood in. I do. But I think we need to really reform the system that we have in place because it's not working. It's not equal representation for everybody. Yeah, here in California, we've got two factions. We've got the moderate Democrats who think uh, that it's okay to take money from Big Pharma and uh, tobacco and all, all those other folks. Uh, and um, then we've got the progressives, of which I'm part of, that say, no, you've got somewhere along the line, you have to stick to, your, to the things that you believe in. You have to have principles, you have to have integrity. And you can't uh, do that if you're taking money from this group over here, this shady group. So uh, that's uh, Bill Clinton's the one that started this slide down this hill. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, we, they used to have bribery and then we decided, oh no, you can't have bribery. So let's pay. And I know you said you lobbied, so no offense, yeah. but I mean, now we're going to pretty up this word and call it lobbying. Yeah. But it's the same uh, thing in certain I, aspects. I wasn't a paid lobbyist. There's a difference there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were just yeah, we'd go there once a year for a big conference and and I was actually in uh, one of the people that trained union stewards on how to lobby. So uh, I guess I am one of the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not saying all lobbyists are bad, but it's like the ones that are paid. And you know the the same thing going with the think tanks. If a think tank is creating the the legislation, at what point are even the people that are in power? not really empowered, they're just figureheads as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, there's a big problem with uh, ALEC. Mm -hmm. And um, there, should, it, there should be some law against what they do, but um, apparently not. But who's going to write the law? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't see them writing a law against themselves. That's true. Good point. So I guess on that note, um, is there anything that we haven't talked about? That you'd like uh, to add. I'm, I'm sure there is, and uh, uh, I'll have to wait for the next book to come out so we can talk again. Okay. Uh, I'm working on a sequel called uh, Moroccan Sunset. It's about a guy whose wife, not wife, his girlfriend dies. He's uh, been living half the hog with her. She's a, an heir to a big fortune, and um, when she dies, he decides that he's going to uh, pro do what he promised her a long time ago and go to Morocco and rebuild what they call a Riyadh. A Riyadh is a traditional way of living in Morocco. You have like three uh, stories in a building and um, down in the bottom of it is a garden or a fountain and then uh, uh, people live in the top two. And uh, so he goes there to, to rebuild uh, one of those and he finds out that the woman he knew was not the same woman that uh, went to Morocco by herself after her father died. So that's what that book's about. Sounds interesting. Well, I thank you, Dan, for joining me today and having a very uh, interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you, Donna. Dan and I had a pretty decent conversation. And I think it's interesting when you look at him running for union president and also being a lobbyist, how things somewhat work and how we understand that, you know, there is a lot of pork spent on certain things. I mean, LAPD needs snow boots. 
hello. You know, I thought, you know, we, we do have mud or they do have mudslides. I don't because I don't live there. But, you know, they have mudslides. They have rain. They have it's always sunny in California. So, you know, I'm sure there's some snow occasionally, kind of like New Orleans. But let's think about this. Why are we spending money on wasteful things when that money could assist other people and other projects to help people? I mean, I could have touched more on some of the documentaries I've watched about the war on drugs and how the war on drugs actually was not very successful. It was all to get money. It was all to, you know, control certain aspects of society and certain people in society. And it's an unfortunate thing that we are still dealing with to this day. But let's talk also about the fact that capitalism killed in the middle class 25 ways the system is rigged against us. You know, when you look at the big picture, there are so many things that, and I hate getting political because I know some of you guys are like, oh, please get off the soapbox. But the thing is, if we can make changes that benefit everybody, our lives would be better. Universal income is not a bad thing. If you could, if you knew that your mortgage payment would be paid and all you had to do is worry about paying your car insurance in your car note and buying groceries, wouldn't your life be just a little easier? Would you be a little less stressed? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that you have to give money away and just say, oh, well, whatever. And I know people are going, but the tax, you know, the deficit ceiling's already up there. Well, yeah, it is. But how much money are we giving to for grants that don't matter or not even for grants, but how much tax breaks are we giving to people that don't deserve a tax break? You know, those are things we have to look at. We have to look at the bigger picture of how do we support the society that we have and how do we grow it? Some people will disagree with me and that's okay. And I don't want to get too political, but we really need to look at the bigger picture because we do already have a lot of socialism here in this country, whether we believe it or not. So I hope you enjoy the show. Dan told me after we were off air that one lucky winner has an opportunity to win a paperback version of one of his books, a book of your choosing. So you can register by sending me an email to at Donna, D-A-U-N-A at better2podcast.com. And you have a choice of winning Capitalism Kill the Middle Class 25 ways the system is rigged against you, or you will forever be my always. His book about Parkinson's, his fictional book about Parkinson's. So that's your choice. You got an opportunity to win a book and all you got to do to enter, like I said, is send me an email and tell me, you know, which book you want to win. And on that note, I hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, if you want to catch up on an episode, you can go to better2podcast.com. If you want to be a guest on the show or you have questions or comments, which some of you may have comments for me this time, you can drop me an email at Donna, D-A-U-N-A at better2podcast.com. That's Donna at better2podcast.com. And if you do have a comment about my political beliefs, well, they are my beliefs. I am not forcing them upon you. So please understand that you can believe what you want to believe and I support you in your belief. So please don't come at me hard. Anyway, I thank you for tuning in. And well, as always, I'll catch you next time. Bye. (laughs) 
Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions.